Social Evolution, a show about the future of humanity, technology, culture, governance, and more. I'm one of your hosts, Michael Porcelli. And I'm Max Borders. And today we're going to be talking about governance. It's kind of a hot topic these days. <laughs> Yesterday was January 6, 2022, and this is like a year since the Capitol riot. So topics like elections, the fairness of elections, governance, what democracy is, is democracy under threat? What do we mean by democracy? Do we like democracy? Do we want democracy? Like these topics are in recent years, actually more on the surface than, you know, just in obscure kind of political science and political philosophy departments in universities. People are actually kind of talking about this alternative voting methods are out there anyway. We want to give a, a take that hopefully will expand your mind, maybe expand your palate in terms of what's available in this conversation. And uh, yeah, Max, what comes to mind when we're talking about this kind of topic, you know, this two-party system, this 200-plus-year-old, you know, government constitution that we're living under? Like, what are the issues that you see? Well, I think the first thing that we need to do uh, together is really talk about the pathologies of the system. And I hate to start off on a negative tone. You know, I, I, I so appreciate the wisdom and the intelligence of the American founders. I think the idea of a constitutional republic for its time was just way ahead of the game. They had the wisdom to weave in features of, of uh, past efforts in governance yeah. that were they thought would be successful they understood theoretically the idea of checks and balances and started to see those emerging and of course they wanted a participatory system that would not be would not succumb so easily to demagogic forces mm -hmm. and so what we had was this amazing operating system call it 1.0 which is the constitutional order in the United States and the United States happens to be the first of its kind in this regard where you had this charter of sorts that set out the parameters of what government could and could not do mm -hmm. and what this what uh, citizens were entitled to and it distinguished them from subjects however the system has since evolved it's been changed it has um it has changed by virtue of forces that are baked into the process and it has changed by forces that are not necessarily baked into the process. And what we have today is a system that is ailing. It is failing in a lot of ways. So I'm, I want to, uh, without, without being disrespectful to the brilliance of the American founding and the, the, the very idea of the democratic republic, begin to, to start to talk about and confront directly what are some of its problems. Well, this is definitely something that I think is going to find a lot of resonance with listeners because I don't know, these, these polling numbers recently of like, well, how many people actually think our country or constitution or democracy is failing? This is actually a weird thing that like people on the left and right actually are agreeing on for different reasons. But like, there, there definitely is in the air this idea of like, is this even working anymore? And like, try, let's, let's try to understand why it's not working or how it's not working. And, you know, maybe there's difference in emphasis on the, uh, you know, both ends of the political spectrum about why it's not working. But I think starting off with the pathologies or the ailments or that sort of thing, I think is a really good place to start. 
Yeah, I agree. And in fact, I think, you know, people tend to look at symptoms and think of them as pathologies. Mm. The root cause analysis, I don't think is going to land where most people hope it will land. For example, you know, Trump is destroying democracy. Trumpism is destroying democracy. You know, the the uh, for lack of a better way of putting it, the goddamn liberals are destroying democracy. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, the uh, there is a a lot of scapegoating. Um, yeah. You know, both in the general sense and in the in the uh, you know in the sense that of uh, of the French philosopher. Um, tell me, what's his name? Which one? The scapegoat philosopher. Oh, don't know. Girard. Gerard, yeah. Yeah. Um, so th- th- I think, you know, th- these these pathologies, we have to be very careful about identifying what is symptomatic and what is pathological. And the root cause analysis involved in this is really sticky, really hard. A lot of people are going to want to scapegoat the other side. A lot of people are going to want to say, well, it's social media. Social media is destroying the, the you know, the, fa- the this, this democratic ideal. Mm-hmm. I would call that the Schmachtenberger Harris thesis sure. after uh, you know Daniel Schmachtenberger and uh, Tristan Harris social network uh, documentary yeah 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 social dilemma social but dilemma. um I think there's a lot of problems that are baked into the system itself and that you know there's problems that give rise to that there's a the, you know in the social singularity my book I I opened the book with this this idea of getting up one morning and looking at your phone and there are only two apps Mm-hmm. the red app and the blue app mm-hmm. right yep and you know functionally or at least intuitively would think that would be a terrible uh, smartphone that only had two apps and yet that is the precisely the kind of operating system that we have right now there are really very few other choices and then when we get through into the problematic aspect of special interest special interest capture of you know the sort of uh, sociopathy that the system of electoral politics breeds the horse trading and all that stuff there's a, a whole layer set of layers bugs in the stack i guess you could say mm-hmm. so i'm curious to know what you think is is some of the most problematic aspects of this system well i think i first thought of this these bugs probably in my college years when you know it was sort of a thing of like well, you know, people sort of vote in a partisan way because at least it's not the other guy. And voting for a third party candidate, let's say if you were interested in voting for a libertarian or voting for a Green Party candidate was like a quote unquote wasted vote because, right, like that's basically letting the other guy. So you may as well pick one of the red versus blue that's the closest to you instead of like what your genuine preference would be because that's the best we can do in a system where it's this kind of winner take all kind of like the way the voting is set up. And so I, that, that was the first moment where I sort of thought like, there's got, there's something broken systematically. Like, like you're saying, like yeah. you know, my, I'm generally going to try to see root, the root cause type of stuff as more kind of faulty systemic stuff rather than kind of like the scapegoating thing that you're, you're talking about. Um, but that that's one thing and i think a lot of people do that like or voting for the the least the the lesser evil or something like this and 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 the fact that that's actually just become a kind of common thought for a lot of people right it, it's it's like it's like a kind of a cynical view like we do this sort of 
rah rah Fourth of July thing or something like whatever it is that we do that like that American civic religion and the Declaration of Independence where we're like we believe in this thing, but then when it actually comes to election season and when people are like choosing people on the ballots or whatever, they're just kind of like, well, what's the lesser of two evils, right? It, it's like it's, it's kind of obvious that like all the choices are like crap choices, you know, and once you start to think about like money and politics and, uh, you know, uh, you know, the, what is it? Campaign finance. And I, Lawrence Lessig wrote a book that I really loved too. That was kind of another big awakening called Republic Lost that I read. And like, when you can kind of see these ways where you can not necessarily like pay for play directly, like I'll give you this and you'll give me that policy. Although corruption like that, you know, has existed in American politics, like Tammany Hall in New York city. Like, yeah, it you can you can kind of get at it through sort of hinting just like you know hey we've got a lot of donors here and you know we would love it if you know blah blah you were really friendly to just generally this and you know, mm-hmm, okay i read you i get your sort of telegraphing things and like and the fact like you can't even get elected without having this like quantity of funds yeah a war chest that even yeah. gets you into the primary pro- i'm like wait a minute this is there's something weird here where it's like the the choices themselves that we have on our ballots are already so pre-digested and pre-vetted and pre-selected by powers that we have very little influence yeah. It's, it's at like all. if you went to a grocery store, right? And somebody and the and, and someone from the store brought you two shopping carts already filled with groceries and said, choose one of these. That's right. That's it that we would think that's crazy. Exactly. And yet that's exactly what we're doing. And, and in fact, yep. the, the grocery cart is not a platform, right? If you want to use the analogy, it's sure. it's not a platform of principles. Let's say, you know, because left and right have abandoned their principles long ago. It's yep. not even clear that the the that if we could get money out of politics, which is a lot of people think that that's the best idea is to get money out of politics. But the problem with the idea of getting money out of politics is then you have you're still going to have massive disagreements on platforms. You're still choosing sure. between two clusters of ideals. So however you arrive at those shopping carts, whether it's special interest capture or idealists, it's still highly restrictive, not really participatory, and you're still in a lesser of two evils phenomenon especially in this system where yep where in a and, and and i'm not even sure look we can talk about other systems like poly, parliamentary systems but yeah, they're they're, yeah. they're broken for other reasons yep. so this whole idea of trying to blur preferences for one course of action on behalf of say you know 325 million people should be to people absurd on its face but it's not it was absurd to the founders, which is why they tried and failed to bake in states' rights. Yeah, but that I don't want to get us too far ahead of ourselves. You're bringing you're bringing in a historical perspective. I was, you know, thinking out loud with a friend the other day, and, and you know, even this, even these talks of like, you know, secession or breaking up the country, people are talking about that now too. And you know, I'm one of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a, hist- a historical view. Is kind of interesting, you know, whatever the 10 or 12,000 years of civilization, depending on how you count it, that we've had, you know, this, this idea of these very large, like, Westphalian nation states with these border, you know, like you're, you know, 
elementary school, you know, you had the map on the world, right? And it's like these, you know, little pink and blue and yellow, you know, lines across these territories. You're like, that view that the world is kind of like carved into these, however many there are, you know, states that are at this size that is fairly huge. And then we just say like, that's the best way to organize. It's like, that's relatively new historically. I mean, we actually have a way more significant portion of the 12,000 years of civilization that was organized around essentially urban centers, urban agricultural centers that were basically somewhat independent of each other. And I'm not, I'm not saying that like this was a romantic view of the past and things were much better back then, but like that's a stable configuration that has worked for a huge portion of history. Well, and it's interesting that you, you bring that up. I mean, I think this is another problematic aspect. We have this kind of, mythology, this nostalgic understanding of civic consciousness. And I think it pervades a lot of our, uh, what we were inculcated with as kids, you know, with their civics books and all this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's, it's, it's really, um, you know, just the very idea of the state, you you know, you talk about these subtle agriculture that, that creates urban centers and pretty much the rationale of, of those areas it, deep into history was, if you believe at least James C. Scott, mm-hmm. was a protection racket. Sure. A big guy comes along and he says, look, I'm going to make you an offer you can't refuse. I'm going to protect you in exchange for a certain percentage of your wheat. And they called that a tax, right? And yeah. when people could, they could start to, uh, to you know, take a little bit of the currency from people later on in Rome, for example, they might not take grain. They might take some of the coinage. Mm-hmm. In the, at the end of the day, this is a game theoretical suboptimum, suboptimal situation where these, these great, great powers formed by virtue of what is essentially mafioso logic. And that people don't want to acknowledge that. It sounds crazy as hell, but it's actually from the, the game theoretical, um, you know, construals of those time made a lot of sense. You know, if you're a farmer, you're not a warrior. And if you're a warrior, your contribution is protection and you want some of that grain you don't know how to grow it boom bob's your uncle you get proto states and empires grew from that okay so now we have a situation where you and i are born into a state of affairs and someone from venezuela is born into a state of affairs and someone in china is born into a state of affairs by virtue of the fact that they're born on this patch of soil and nothing else means that whatever Whatever operating system is configured on that patch of soil, they have to abide by those rules, come what may. Yeah. Or leave. Or leave. And sometimes you can't leave because there's nowhere to go. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, we're drifting into some interesting territory here. Like, you know, we're not just talking about the contemporary, like why it's broken now. We're talking a little bit about the roots of it and just hold on that for another moment. I mean, unless... you know, I haven't read Scott to the degree that you have, you know, I'm familiar with his ideas, but, you know, this... The roots of it, at some level, I think of it like, hey, you know, if we're going to play a game together, we want a referee that's a neutral third party. And I can see, in a way, the emergence of the proto-state that's a little bit less of a mafioso logic and more of like, you know, do I want to be the enforcer of the fairness of our market exchanges? Do you want to be the enforcer? Here I'm talking about kind of like a, a primitive libertarianism, so to speak. It seems sort of natural that like, a group of people will be like, Hey, let's just pick 
some subset of ourselves to, to be the neutral parties when there are disputes, right? Right. Like, and this is this is the generally the Madisonian view. Yeah. Um, and this is the this is and 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 to to some extent the Hobbesian view. I think it's like muted Hobbesianism. It's like, yeah. okay, if I'm going to be the biggest, baddest mother in, in, in the place, yeah. let me be wise and let me be fair-minded and let me adjudicate between these different conceptions of the good and try to keep the peace. Mm-hmm. That is the general Hobbesian rationale, and it's one that we, we tend to accept fundamentally, most people accept to this day. They don't see how it could be otherwise. I think the purpose of this show today is to demonstrate that not only could it be otherwise, but probably should. Let's let's get into it. Yeah. All right. Cool. So, or do we want to talk more about the pathologies right now, or do you want to move into kind of some thoughts on like what are alternatives? What do you think? Well, let's 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 talk about a couple more problematic aspects of this, right? Yeah. I'm right. First of all, there's this idea of the one true way, mm-hmm. right? That whoever wins in this titanic tug of war. Right, which is essentially what it is. Mm-hmm. You, you've got a tug of war, red team and blue team, and special interests on both sides are helping pull. Right, mm-hmm. and every election cycle, one of those teams wins, and they get to instantiate the rules based mostly on what the special interests want because they've provided the war chest, you know, to mix metaphors. But in any case the people who are laboring on one side of the rope or the other fancy that they have access to the one true way, Mm -hmm. even if they could get rid of the special interest to whom they have to sell their souls to, to do this stuff. They think that they have the one true way. These are, this is the philosopher King mentality, right? Yeah. Well, there's a lot of true ways out there as we're, as we're starting to see and nobody uh, and everybody wants to claim access to the one true way. And that should be instantiated at the, at the level of the central government shoved everybody else down everybody else's throat. Yeah. Well, that's this is what creates a lot of the tribalism we have. Right. This is what creates the the tension is that everybody's got access to one true way. The, 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 their values are supreme values. The other person's values suck. They suck. They're evil. They're good, good and bad. We turn Manichaean. But this comes from the very institutional substrate that is we're calling into question today, not from the fact that everybody has one or one true way kind of thinking. Because if you change the institutional rules underneath this stuff, then people will start to be, I believe, a lot more circumspect and a lot more reflective about their one true way opinions. That's the first thing. Second thing, voting. If you're you're crying your teardrop in the ocean and expecting the tide to turn. I mean, come on. The probability of your vote affecting the outcome of the election is close to nil unless you live in a swing state. And even then, that shows you just how arbitrary this is, that someone in Ohio or Virginia is going to determine the outcome of this whole thing for for 325 million people in the United States, for example. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. Anything else for you that's problematic? I could go on all day about this. <laughs> so, um, I want to I want to go back to the the one true way idea a little bit and poke at it because I think it's you know if if I were listening to what you just said, I would be like, hey, but you know one of the one of the things that the the, the modern political philosophers, you know, these guys, you know, we talked about Locke and Hobbes and Madison and these guys, like they're it's like trying to solve for 
perhaps uh, an error of the Greeks, right? The Greeks sort of saw democracy as almost like a mob rule or almost like a stage in a cycle of a thing. And this kind of idea that democracy back then maybe meant just strictly majoritarian rule. And then the modernist political philosophers are like, let's add this concept of liberalism, right? Like, which is a kind of a restraint or this idea of checks and balances. And when you're talking about like, hey, like, what about trying to impose this one true way? I thought, you know, and I think it's accurate to say at least it was a, an idea to solve for the one true way problem, which is Definitely. like, look, we're going to say over here, you can have religious freedom and you can run your household how you want. You can run your communities how you want, right? You could, we don't have to agree between, you know, this, this belief system and that belief system. But what we can agree on is this kind of restrained type of governance that allows there to be, that allows essentially the, the fact of pluralism. We've talked about this before. Like, yes, we're not going to get onto the same page about like, we're going to run the country according to like a, a, a puritanical code or, you know, or, or a Sharia law or whatever. We're not going to get there ever. So let's just allow those to be neighborly in a sense by, by having a smaller set, mm-hmm. you know, this, whatever you want to call it, like the Bill of Rights or this kind of more, I suppose, minimalistic uh, universalism that we can all agree on that allows, it is like a platform to allow for this pluralism. Well, so I, I, I agree with that. I think if, 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 we, if we were able to instantiate the vision, of, the liberal vision of the founders. Yes. Um, truly where the Ninth and Tenth Amendments to the Constitution, for example, meant something mm-hmm. where they do not mean anything now. Mm-hmm. They, they, they literally mean nothing. When is the last time you've heard of a case being brought towards uh, to the Supreme Court that had to do with the Ninth or Tenth Amendment? They're essentially inert, but they were supposed to guarantee states' rights, that everything that the federal government does should be spelled out really clearly in the Constitution and otherwise proscribed by the Bill of Rights, specifically nine and ten, mm-hmm. that's dead. That is essentially dead. I mean, if it if it weren't for uh, you know people like George Mason, um, you know, who is one of the American founders who doesn't get a lot of get, get a lot of sunlight these mm-hmm. days. Yeah, you know, if you if you combine the 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 the, the George Mason Mason rationale with the Madisonian rationale of of, of you know trying to prevent faction. With all these people who have the, whether it's the one true way or the Tammany Hall devils, you know, there's the one true way angels. Right. And then there's the Tammany Hall devils. And for, for, for all intents and purposes, they might as well be the, is the same person. They're called human beings <laughs> with just different opinions. Yeah. This factionalization is going to happen. The question is, how do you deal with it? Mm-hmm. And how do you prevent it from corrupting the republic? That's the questions they were confronted with. And interestingly, Jefferson had two, two, you know, very quickly, two ideas I think were super important. The first was this, um, you know, this idea that he wrote into the Declaration of Independence, which is the consent of the governed. Yes. The, the way we interpret the consent of the governed these days is that you show up and, and, and send your prayers up in the voting booth. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Teardrop in the ocean again, you know, choose your metaphor. It it doesn't work. That's not consent. Let's not kid each other. There's also no such thing as a social contract. 
<laughs> they're just not okay uh you know if you like that kind of talk great but there's you know hypothetical social contracts are are are, are silly now the second thing that jefferson brought to the table I thought was was after he had retired uh from presidential life he wrote to one of his friends about ward republics He's, he was basically saying we were not able to install these liberal angels mm-hmm. and already after my presidency, I'm seeing the dissolution of the Republic. We need to have far more localization. And I agree with Jefferson in that regard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, I think what's, it's interesting to, too, to think about the moment in which it was kind of created and, you know, there weren't nations of the scope like 300 million people you know from sea to shining sea like that happened later right like the the westward expansion of the united states of america comes way after the constitution and you know i think there is you know i don't think age is necessarily an ailment but this idea of you know I'm a futurist, right? And just like you are. And like, I like innovation and I like disruption. I mean, I have a conservative aspect of me too, which is sort of like, you know, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater and these ideas like Chesterton Spence, you should understand a thing before you get rid of it. Right. On the other hand, like, I do think this idea that, you know, we, we encoded this thing called the United States constitution as long ago as we did, we still, it's, it would be like we're running on MS-DOS or something on supercomputers. You know what I mean? It's like, why do we think that this version of the liberal ideal? So we're maybe what we're saying here, at least what I'm hoping is like the, the liberal ideal of the restrained thing, you know, is kind of what we're thumbs up on it. We're just basically saying the system as it is, is, is failing or has failed has failed possibly for a very long time now at delivering on that. And instead what we have is this kind of almost like Lord of the Rings, like one ring of power thing where we just keep adding more powers to the exactly. executive branch. And it keeps getting larger rather than smaller. And instead of like preserving the thing that the, the liberal democracy was supposed to be preserving, which was the restraint we've actually created something that's ever more expansionary, like ever more percent of the, you know, spending in the economy, right? It's like, this is. Yeah. It's a, it's a monster. It's a monstrous, a monstrous beast. Right. Um, And it's, and it's also a monstrous hybrid to use uh, Jane Jacobs term because it, it has features of the corp of corporations and has features of the state, which makes it even more monstrous. Right. So the special interest capture, yeah, uh, you know, mingled with the I- idealism creates these bootleggers and Baptist phenomena, you know, things like that. But I want to I want to go back to something you said, and I think this is a really important point. The first thing we want to do is is really parse the distinction between traditional conservatism and traditional progressivism. And I'm using progressive instead of liberal for a reason. Yes, because the liberals that we are referring to were about something very different than either conservatives or progressives. But let's give the conservatives and the progressives, traditionally speaking, their due. Awesome. You said something great, and that was Chesterton's fence. Mm-hmm. The idea, like before we tear this fence down, let's find out why it was built and how it functions. Right. What does it and do? And if we don't know that, it might be something in amber 
for no reason at all except some sort of like intergenerational groupthink, or it might be there for a reason. We just don't understand fully understand the reason because society is so complex. That's why conservatives team tend to be interested in the power of tradition. Yes. Because tradition can be a conduit of wisdom, even if that wisdom isn't terribly well understood. Sure. So there, there's, there's your conservatives giving them their due traditional conservatives, not modern conservatives. Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, at least not most of them. The depoliticized version of that word. Is the depoliticized it? version of the word conservative. Exactly. Yeah. The, the depoliticized version of progressive is okay. We want to make change for the better. We want to be able to make change for the better. Yes. We might not be so concerned about the means of how that change is made and ought to be if mm-hmm. the conservative standing there going, wait, 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 wait. But otherwise, our, you know, we are concerned about ends that are important, are valuable, and are good. Mm-hmm. And in service of those good ends, we want to do stuff. Get out of the way. Mm-hmm. Right. We want to make change for the good of all. That There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that in isolation, just as there's nothing wrong with the conservative who's standing right right next to him or her saying, but 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 wait a minute. Yeah. In order to do that, you might have to tear down something important. Right. Right. So here we have two different perspectives from cons- which have degenerated into views that don't take either of those perspectives into account very much. Mm-hmm. And what we get now is is more like tribal warfare, a series of talking points and opinions that cluster together in in-groups mm-hmm. that don't really have any kind of attachment to principles at all. Yeah. Well, this 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 is great. Like this idea that the whatever the red-blue two-party system is has become unmoored even entirely from this traditional conservative, liberal, or progressive thing you're talking about. I mean, that was another, another um, light bulb for me back at this sim- similar, you know, age, my, you know, my early twenties, I was like, wait, so, you know, if you, if you sort of think of, um, the, I don't know if you remember this, like, you, you know, we have, nowadays we have that kind of political compass where it's like, let's break this down instead of like a left to right spectrum, like a two dimensional one. And, and the favorite one these days is like, uh, where it's like authoritarian versus libertarian and like left versus right. And this is kind of like, find yeah. your place on the it's like map. a Nolan chart kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, Oh, that's pretty cool. Like these people are kind of thinking in a, an, an additional dimension, but the, the two dimensions that were more popular, I suppose, when people were reflecting on this in my early twenties was, um, are you like, um, is it social versus economic? Right. So like, you know, in, in the, the, the Republicans were sort of like economically, uh, liberal, I suppose. And like socially conservative. Right. And the, yeah, progressives were sort of economically whatever conservative <laughs> right and like and socially liberal and like the, yeah. that was another kind of two-dimensional matrix of kind of making sense of where you were at and like at, when i saw that i was like oh that's sort of weird it was a little bit of my uh you know early appeal of libertarianism for me i'm like oh at least the libertarian view is consistent right like economically liberal and socially liberal like and I'm like ooh, that's i like the feel of that right there's there's some internal consistency there and i'm not necessarily arguing for any one of these particular places but it you know just for the listener i imagine at some point or another in your life if you're listening to a, a podcast like us you you've thought about this way that like 
these two shopping carts of like just aggregated things, pre-digested packages of stuff. It's like, this is, it seems somewhat arbitrary. And this is kind of, you know, this is one of the things as part of the ailment or the pathology of the current system is you're like, this shopping cart was assembled by a bunch of people that you don't know and you weren't there. And they made a whole bunch of deals with each other of like, you support me on this and I'll support you on that, which is essentially like horse training and money. And then they present these two pre-digested packages. And then you have this weird kind of correlation where like, well, I guess if I'm against abortion, then I'm in favor of free market economics. And you're like, <laughs> right. It's like, ah! why? Right. Like, I mean, yeah. like, it's <laughs> just because somebody grouped them together before you got there. That's right. right? And now That's you're right. sort of faced with the false cho a choice that is like a so constrained where you're sort of like, well, I either have to pick package A or package B or waste my vote on some third party, whatever, you know, well, and that's what, that's what's so beautiful about independent media these days. Yeah. You get these category killers like Glenn Greenwald yeah. and Joe Rogan and, you know, even the lower brow stuff, like, you know, a lot of people uh, make fun of Rogan cause he's, you know, he's the biggest podcaster in the world. So whatever, but you know, he's got interesting guests on his show yeah. and they're not nearly all the same. What's yeah. common about them is in matter of fact, just how different they are from one guest to the next. Yeah. But that one guest to the next heterodox thinking that it engenders, I think is healthy because it really points to the fact of pluralism. Yes. And it show it exposes the ridiculous uh duality of the American system and and I think people are hungry for something else now. It's, it's building. Yes. You'll find that sometimes these filter bubbles and these, you know, the way the algorithms constantly serve up, people will, will there will be lo, lo, loci, yeah. uh, locus points, lo, loci, whatever, um, around. Yeah, you'll, 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 you'll get these sort of like uh, strange attractors around uh, certain figures or whatever, and it's still basically left and right. But there's a lot of heterodox voices out there and they're growing. And the reason that it's good to have the heterodoxy growing is because it's going to get to a point where we look at the system with the two shopping carts held out before us and go, why this? Or, the, 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 or waking up with your phone and seeing the red app and the blue app and wondering where the hell is my, my iPad right. with the 4,000 apps on it? Right. Where did that go? Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Where's that? But I don't want to. I don't want to skip too far ahead. Um, I, I think. I think a lot of this. You know. I think a lot of the, this idea of deliberation and of of trying to track truth in order to be a good citizen is itself problematic. I do have a sort of a, a little bit of historical respect for that view. You know, the idea of like the the some the ideal pr person for the politi uh, for 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 politics. This is both Aristotelian and oh, like uh, a well-informed well well-informed well voter. This and that. I mean, we what we we we've done a lot of research to understand that there's just no such thing as the well-informed voter. <clears throat> Not really. Uh -huh. Like most people I talk to about mohair subsidies don't even know what mohair is. <laughs> you know, so it's like well. 
And that's, you know, economists, political economists call this rational ignorance, rational irrationality. In other words, the cost of gaining the requisite knowledge to make informed decisions beyond the sharpening shopping carts is is too high and too costly. Yeah. Why the hell do we have this system? Oh, well, it, it, it's it's a path dependency. We always have. We always should. The, the, at school, they told us that, that we were the greatest country in the world and the fact that we were a democratic republic. And, yeah. and, and this sort of nostalgic bullshit keeps us, excuse my mouth, keeps us locked into this mind frame. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and that doesn't mean I don't respect the hell out of the founders. I do. Yeah. But the, the way this system has evolved away from the founding project, yeah. it's silly. Scrap it. But chesterson's fence we got to scrap it carefully and we got to know what we're scrapping yeah yeah so i love that we're kind of starting to ease into kind of some of the underlying things of like like you said like what we do need to preserve and even this idea of like do we do we need this um well-informed voter coherent thing and i think we you and i may actually find some interesting points of contention between the two of us which i think will make for a an interesting discussion um, but I do, before we just depart here, I want to just acknowledge something that we have sort of acknowledged in implicit ways in our conversation, but to really, especially in the moment that we're in, it, the polarization thing yeah. has become so extreme and it becomes its own feedback loop. And like you and I like to focus on, hey, these growing voices in this heterodox domain and on YouTube or in podcasting world and like the diversity and pluralism that's out there. And I'm like, agreed. That's really cool. And I think more and more people are tuning in, more and more people are defecting on, you know, the Fox News and the MSNBC. However, that's not everybody. The other thing that's happening is the the voices at these extremes are becoming shrill. And if, you know, if if we're looking at, you know, perhaps there was some ideal version of like a post-war United States or, you know, people talk about like, you know, liberal Republicans and conservative Democrats and like the, the ability to compromise or to reach across the aisle. And to some degree, it seems like they were a little bit better during that phase about doing that than we are now. But like the now, especially since the January 6th thing happened in 2011, 2021, I mean, is it's like, Oh, the other side is just pure bad. Like even trying to cooperate with them or deliberate with them or discuss with them is bad. And like, and, and right now it's like, oh, well, like, yeah, the Democrats are trying to, to annihilate democracy and they've installed unfairly, you know, Joe Biden or the reverse, which is sort of like, you know, right. Trump tried to hostile takeover a coup. And yeah. With the help of the Russians. Right. right. And like the, Whatever this is, like the narrative has become so polarized that each side is now basically saying like, well, they're the enemy like of the whole system and I'm the protector yes. of the system and we can't we, even listen to them anymore. We want a better, pure democracy that's for the people. Yeah. And those guys are trying to tear it down. And right. it's it's just ridiculous. It's like, A, there's no pure, pure, better democracy. There's just not. Yes. Okay. Um, I mean, there's, you could get marginally better along certain dimensions, but there's just something fundamentally foobar about, you know, 50% plus one. It's, yes. you know, it, there's just a goofiness to it. I agree. Um, yeah. You equate democracy with 50% plus one, which is maybe a, a little bit of a 
contentious point right there. But sure. Well, I mean, look, and then you start to look at the machine, the apparatus that is, uh, you know, governance in the United States, governance models in the United States. Yeah. It it's equally absurd, but for different reasons. It's sort of like our our shrillness is because we want to commandeer this machine in service of our conception of the good, and this machine is flopping around and it's. It's slamming people. It's, you know, it just doesn't work. The special yeah. interests are over here tugging on one of the arms of the this apparatus. And, you know, it's like, but but they're so shrill because they want to be the ones to drive it, even yeah. though it's an undrivable machine. Yeah. And and the the whole idea of, you know, an economy or a society as a machine that needs to be built, fixed, or run is kind of in people's minds when they have this one true way mentality, this tribal groupthink yes. mentality. So Got, we got to disabuse ourselves of that. But the only way to do that is, I believe, to make people um, have more skin in the game. And that is to say, your shrillness should come from trying to attract people to your niche, governance niche. And this is a new concept I'm trying to, I'm doling out here, except for states' yeah. rights. Yeah. States' rights was a way of introducing multiple governance niches. That was still wedded to the old idea of terra firma and jurisdiction on terra firma, which is, you know, a, an artifact of conquest and law that emerges on conquest of certain soil by somebody. That's just how it has been historically. The question is, does it need to be that way anymore? And the other question is, do, does, does, um, can we create new niches? And if we can, can those niches survive and persist in time are they sustainable of their own volition by virtue of membership in your group if you can bring more and more members into your group who are successfully finding the governance systems working in service of their conception their common conception of the good there you go now you're approaching something that is more like the ideal of democracy shorn of its problematic aspects sure yeah yeah and i you know this is this is the whatever if there's a market niche that you and i want to speak to it's the people that are like hey we get it like it's that horseshoe theory of like the the shrill far lefties and the shrill far right people start sounding the same really more than different actually talk about that for a minute talk about that for a minute because you and i have talked about this but our audience is going to be curious what do you mean by horseshoe? How could they possibly have anything in common? Right. Like this, this idea that, you know, if, if you go far out enough on the extreme that like maybe in content, the, the, the differences become amplified, but, but there's something about the, the tone or the form or the, some of the things they start saying, start sounding the same. And it's this idea that like, instead of going out along a line, you're kind of like, it's they're they're starting to bend around and actually become more similar than yeah. different. And the similarity is actually more kind of like we're in an emergency and you need to trust us to like, you know, handle everything because we're under threat and those other guys are gonna like destroy everything. Right. Yeah. Like, and that's the thing you start hearing that sounds the same, right? Like, and the solutions are often very much the same, which is sort of like, you gotta give us emergency powers, right? Like <laughs> Like hand it over right now because they're about to like destroy everything. Like, and it's like, okay, like whatever these far extreme versions are is, is just 
they sound more like more and more like the one true way and we're in a state of emergency and I'll, I'll give you two I'll give you two good examples those are negative examples I'll give you two good examples the yeah. first one is 911 right and I got swept up into this I'll admit it I was like I I was swept up into get them you know after 911 it was it was uh from uh, an um, my emotions I believe in hindsight clouded my ability to reason through it mm-hmm. and of course we learned a lot over time about about the the problem of of war as a means of, you know, look, there, there, there are other, you know, there are good perspectives on both sides, but essentially what we got from that, um, from nine 11 is a surveillance state Mm -hmm. that I don't think anybody really wants or likes anymore. The Patriot act doubling down on the Patriot act, um, blowing up whole you know, expanding whole agencies and their powers, reducing the the powers of other you know of the of the citizen and so on you know after a while i think both left and right were like hmm this is this is not uh necessarily a good thing although i'm glad that there are people there prosecuting the global war on terror and protecting us having to give up our civil liberties and um you know uh entirely you know in 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 great measure was was deeply problematic um and here now we have the same thing happening with respect to to January 6th. Yesterday was the 1 year anniversary of January 6th and we get words like insurrection. Mm-hmm. And the, the the word insurrection is really, you know, designed to justify the instantiation of an expanded deep state uh uh you know, the suspension or dismantling of civil li- civil liberties in law. And the ability to to sort of track people with whom you don't agree, you you know, saying oh it's insurrection or or domestic terrorism, mm-hmm. when you know I've seen I've seen worse shit so worse things happen at rock concerts than what happened there. A real insurrection is what happened you know uh, to Ceausescu in in, in 1989. This wasn't an insurrection. This was a a bunch of rednecks who rioted and breached. And look, I'm not. I don't want to. I don't want to like disparage people. But in essence, what you got was a riot, riot, riotous group that burned out of control, breached the Capitol, and went in there, raised hell, and a bunch of them got arrested. Mm -hmm. You'll notice that there is nothing resembling in the charges brought against these 700 or so people. Nothing resembling insurrection sedition any of these kinds of laws and there's a reason for that because it wasn't they weren't really armed anyway we can go on about that this that's a that's a political hot button and the point is not to take sides in that yeah right the point is to say both parties are want to figure out how to grow their own power and largesse that goes to that power and they both were successful of it by scaring the shit out of people and that's where the the horseshoe thing kind of happens and you know let's let's leave that for now and say look what we're trying to talk about is something that as best as we can doesn't fall prey to one of these similar types of dynamics of extremism and you know it it's it's with some degree of trepidation and, and humility i step into that because you know, like cognitive bias and you're not free of it and I'm not free of it. And like powers that are beyond our ability to understand or control, like are influencing you and me 
you know, just just as they are influencing these shrill voices on the extreme right and the extreme left. Um, but I do think we have some really clever and interesting ideas worth considering that, you know, we didn't originate these ideas um, about like, well, what would be a way of coming together that's maybe beyond left and right and beyond liberal or conservative or progressive right. conservative or, you know, this two party system or this winner take all style of voting. It's like, and I think, you know, one of the things that was happening, I can't remember when it, it was, it was not that long ago. It was like some, some jurisdictions decided on like, Hey, let's do approval voting instead of first past the post voting winner take all, or let's do ranked choice voting. And I think there are in the United States, like there's a, and you know, I know there's limitations even with these particular kind of voting systems that are alternative to the winner take all, but in some way it kind of makes uh, voting for the person you really prefer or voting for that third party candidate, less of a wasted vote. If you could do rank choice or approval voting and right. I'm not trying to advocate specifically for one or the other of these, but to simply say we're in a moment that's actually ripe for discussing the underlying architecture of our systems Yes. And people are open to like, huh, well, what if we, whatever, did it this way instead of that way or tried something different? And I think th this talk of governance is, it's in the air and it's really interesting, you know, and, and, you know, one of our favorite topics of blockchains and decentralized tech, you know, there's talk of governance over there. Like how do we, how do we govern how we do code changes on our, our blockchain crypto system and like crypto governance even though it's not trying to be societal governance just yet at least decision makers of like how the miners all come to make decisions about what code to install for their blockchains is a matter of governance and so like governance yeah. governance governance people are fucking talking about it like corporate governance and you know alternative forms of that we've talked about that before as well like holacracy and these kinds of things right. it's kind of cool that like it's a moment where people are like some people and that's you our listener like hopefully you're interested enough to be part of this conversation of like what are the systemic level things we can do to change things or make them better that is right so partisan politics one one thing is and there's marginal changes and there's fundamental changes yeah and i do i do agree that there's some really cool voting systems out there that are that are emerging proxy voting also known as liquid democracies kind of interesting Yep. Um, there's a, you know, ranked choice voting. There's Janáček method out of uh, uh, the Czech Republic. There's a, a brilliant mathematician, I think, named Janáček, who, who allows you to express not only who you like, but who you hate. Right. Yeah. So you have like a black ball. Wild voting. has that quadratic voting thing. Quadratic voting. Yeah. Uh, Wild and uh, Buterin. Mm -hmm. um, yep. the, these are interesting models when your consensus mechanism requires some sometimes you have a collective action problem yeah okay and and i want to acknowledge this and take a step back and say you know what is it okay what is this collective action problem a collective action problem is simply something that uh is a decision that seems at least to need to be made on behalf of an entire group a single decision right yeah and the game theoretical dynamics of that can be difficult in terms, uh, especially when our default is usually um, uh, majoritarian rule. Some of the early DAOs for the, for example, for the technological 
aspects of, say, inside of Dash cryptocurrency were done with majoritarian rule. And that's okay, right? Mm -hmm. um, but what they're learning is that there might be better ways to do it that include more preferences and include more negative preferences. There's, you know, where you approach unanimity a lot more because there has to be a single vote made. Um, I love, um, and here's a shout out to, to Marginal Revolution's Alex Tabarrok. He has a, he, his is not a voting system, but I think it, it is a, an adjudication mechanism that's really interesting called dominant assurance contracts. Mm -hmm. Dominant assurance contracts are a form of assurance contract that where the person who proposes, makes the proposal has more skin in the game. I could, we're, we should have Alex on the show to talk about dominant assurance contracts sometime. But there again, that is how you provide a public good through private means, which is much, much different from let's elect some people who decide two years into our having elected them that they're going to build some massive public works project and and they do it by, by dint of horse trading and voting on some council. So it's majoritarian at the level of the council and everybody else is like, what? So now we're building a stadium for a rich guy, a basketball stadium for a rich guy. We're, we're going to pay for that. I don't watch basketball. What the hell's going on? Whereas with a dominant assurance contract model, you might be able to provide something like that, have it be owned collectively, have people benefit from having tokenized that and, and brought it into existence. And if you think it can be profitable, then you get some return on, I mean, there's all kinds of really cool stuff out there that's made possible by crypto, the cryptocurrency space. And I don't want to, I don't want to keep us too far going down that rabbit hole. Suffice it to say, there's things that we can do at the margins to solve collective action problems. Yeah. And sometimes we don't need to solve a collective action problem. We just need to go in two different directions and create two different systems. Yes. So there's so much in here. Like, you know, what I think is interesting before we, before we move on further into solutions, I, you know, there, there's a way that I think of this collective action problem thing that it's, it just comes, it's, I guess, an evolutionary perspective, right? Like humans are social animals. And ultimately for us to fulfill uh, our basic needs, but to also to flourish, we, we need each other. We have to have each other, right? And like we are in the, you know, spectrum of sociality amongst other animals. We are hyper social, probably social, more social than any other creatures except, you know, termites and ants and bees and that means that we do have something like collective action type of agreements we get into with each other all of the time like we we pool our resources or like we we pool our money together in insurance policies and or we create nation states where we pool our money together we make mutuals taxation mutuals are uh, really really good you know whether it's a mutual aid society or a mutual insurance arrangement these are really interesting time-tested structures yeah. that we can do that can that move a lot of earth. Yeah. Honestly, corporations are a kind of private collective if you really think about what they are. And that, you know, I am all for cooperation and groups coming together to do things for mutual benefit because we are so much more together. You know, there are this non-zero-sum idea that like what we're able to do together exceeds what we could all do sort of summed up as individual like separate in people like that's i think basically true and it's a fundamental tenet of markets and corporations and 
governments and mutuals and all these things. I'm going to say something that might upset people, including you. <laughs> but I would say the degree to... So what's interesting about what you just said there about organizations, mm-hmm. different organizations, particularly corporations, mm-hmm. is they almost always have missions. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, some don't because they are, have mission creep or, or adrift or, and for whatever reason. But organizations, generally speaking, have missions. They have raison d'etre, right? And if they don't have a mission, um, they usually dissolve or have to adopt one quickly to maintain their coherence. The difference between a fascist and a liberal is someone who thinks that society or the economy does or does not have a mission. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mussolini thought societies have missions Mm -hmm. and the the purpose of the state was to conscript the corporations into its broader corpus to realize those missions. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, when you start talking to people about the common good and the public good, they start sounding a whole hell of a lot like Mussolini and don't even realize it. Mm-hmm. But from a functional standpoint, there's not much difference there. And if there is, somebody, you or somebody else, is going to have to explain what that difference is. Now, if, if you phrase it in terms of a liberal kind of mission, which is the purpose of the state is to protect the rights of, uh, and, and freedoms of citizens, mm-hmm. okay, but you're still preserving, the point is to preserve their autonomy. That is another way of saying there is no mission per se that requires X, Y, Z functionally to achieve it, except Mm -hmm. um, however your conception, your monolithic conception of protecting rights and freedoms is. And we could get into that in another episode. Mm -hmm. But suffice it to say, generally speaking, the Hayekian view is that societies and economies don't have missions. They're non-teleological, which is what distinguishes them from organizations. Yeah. So there, there may be, I mean, I largely agree with you. And, you know, this idea of either a communist ideal or a fascist ideal that like all organizations should be subservient to as though it's a collective ideal is problematic. And it, it ends up justifying the worst human rights violations that we see historically, you know, but on the other hand, you know, if we're talking about something like a, a you know, a liberal conception, a, a, you know, classically liberal conception, libertarian conception of markets, like this idea that there is some minarchical kind of referee style of like maintaining the basic rules under which kind of the, the, the reality of pluralism and diversity can flourish, you know, do we, is that a mission? You know, I, I think to some degree it it is a mission and to kind of go back to the collective action issue, it's like once we pool, like if you and I pool together and say, Hey, we're going to do this thing. Well, then we have to kind of abide by the rules that we mutually agree to, which is, you know, not a fixed, a fictitious social contract, but a real social contract where the terms are, you know, either written on a legal document or they're encoded in a smart contract. But at a certain point, it's kind of like, Hey, Oh yeah, this sounds really good. Let's all pool together and whatever. And then I'm kind of like, hey, I want to I want to make a claim on this pool that we've created. You know, let's say it's just one of these kind of collective insurance contracts of some kind, sure, social safety net or whatever. You're kind of like, hey, like I need help, so I, I paid into this thing. I need to kind of 
get something out of this thing, well, then I got to abide essentially by whatever the governance of this collective pool is. And if I don't like it, I, I could leave. But, you know, if, if suddenly, you know, everyone could just fork as individual contributors at you know, for whatever reason they wanted at any given moment they want, like you kind of create another game theoretical dynamic that sort of prevents the pool from even kind of forming forming right yeah. so you got you know this is this is why you know stock purchase lock-in periods exist right it's like you go in and it's like yeah you're in now you can't just fucking get out of it right or you know if you if you pop in and out of like debt all the time your credit rating goes down or something like this like there's some way of at least you know the open source movement in software is actually a fun technological example. This fun is kind of a weird word. He forked all the time. And, and everyone was like, how come we can't get any traction against Microsoft windows? And that's because like, well, that's because you have like a hundred versions of Linux. It's because I don't like you. And so we're going to just going to fork and make a new one. And it's like, well, then you're kind of undermining the ability to create like network effects cool together. Yeah. Network yeah, effects. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think, I think those kind of, uh, those, those kind of think, I, I think first I want to just say I think that there, we, we dodged a merely semantic disagreement there okay. because cool. I totally agree with you. We need these structures and we need them to hang together, right? Yeah. We need both things. We need actual social contracts, actual. not hypothetical social contracts, not yeah. whatever the hell that I come up with in my mind uh, is in my conception of the good gets to be the common good. Yeah. It's really that whatever system that we have, we agree to what is the common good and we abide by the processes of both change and exit through um, honoring both sides of that agreement. Yeah. So the, there is a, the pool, the, the, the common, the, the common um, uh, rule set that gets established for the group. Yeah. Um, Everybody has to abide by that. All parties have to agree to that. Okay. Yeah. So the, the, the collective in a DAO has to uphold their part of the agreement and the rules of the game. Yeah. And the participants in that have to abide by their part of their side of the agreement yeah. and uphold the rules of the game. Otherwise there will never be any coherence in the system. However, and this, this is a good time, I think to get into, um, um, because we only have about five minutes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I think it's it's worth talking about polycentricity and polyarchy. Okay, very briefly as a punchline. Yes. Um, you know, go into it in way more depth in a future episode. Like, maybe yeah, and we absolutely should. If 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 by the way, if listeners, if you if you like what you're hearing here and you want more of it, let us know. We'll we'll uh, let us know through whatever means, email, social media. We're we're interested in it. Um, but uh, this goes back to the sort of, the, the sort of raw Jeffersonian con conception, which is tied to terra firma in a lot of ways because he didn't have technological means, Yeah, Ma you know, mass communications, any of it. So his notion of jurisdiction is tied to terra firma, right? But he still had a really, really robust notion of polycentricity, which is the idea of breaking up centers of power. Mm -hmm. Absolute power corrupts absolutely as we're seeing right now in the United States, uh, we need to be able to break that up. We will start to see the rise of the states, of local jurisdictions, 
And that is a good thing. Even if you don't agree what it, with any particular just jurisdiction is doing, it's creating a situation that Taleb would call anti-fragile. That is to say, decisions made on behalf of the entire group can be catastrophic for the entire group if it's done in error. A decision made on behalf of a subset of that group might won't be catastrophic for the whole. Right. It'll be catastrophic locally, and the adaptation can occur locally. Yep. Especially if people are in their locality can make observations and there are good feedback loops in that locality. Yes. The idea of federalism and subsidiarity is in desperate need of a resurgence because otherwise you cannot handle the complexity of this world without it. Yeah. We have some version of it to a degree, you know, in the sense that like, you know, we see people like there's like a lot of exodus out of California, you know, Elon Musk has talked about his choice to leave California and Joe Rogan did too. And there are differences between Texas and California, for example, just to pick one pair example, like, and there's so much more that could be realized under this ideal. Like it, and it's funny because, you know, a lot of times national politics is like show business and we all are all super hand wringing and concerned over, you know, these big, you know, Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump and Joe Biden and whatever. And instead of like, it's like, who's on your city council? I don't know. Like, like yes. it would be way better if our, you know, areas of concern were actually more kind of correlated or corresponding to our areas of influence. And like right now, these things are really skewed by this bizarro, like hyper centralized system that we've created. And, I think this idea of like more of a restoration of like locality of influence and concern kind of being more correlated together, that is actually not just um, creates more systemic resiliency. I think it actually creates more freaking sanity for everyday citizens of kind of like, oh, I can make a difference. Yeah, it's it's the availability. It's It's like we have chosen and institutionalized the availability cascade. Yeah. Uh, availability heuristic uh, from, um, um, well, availability cascade is Timor Curran and Cass Sunstein, but they get it um, from um, Amos Am- Tversky or whatever. Anyway, yeah. the idea is the media builds up one very hyper localized or very rare phenomenon, and election cycles turn out to be that, right? So all of the oxygen gets sucked up by the national spectacle when all the real action that affects you is local. Right. And so we ignore it. 8% of the population, if you're lucky, turns out for these local elections. Yep. Um, whereas if we had more decentralized power, where all our local authorities were making really titanic decisions locally on our behalves, we'd all be turning out to those, to those town halls, those public meetings. Yep making sure we're voting. And I'm not even suggesting that that's the way that the consensus mechanism should happen locally. I am, uh, I, I, you know, I believe in actually even more subsidiarity than at the, at the the city level um, and more, more niches. But before we go, there's this interesting idea I want to leave you with called polyarchy or panarchy. And we may have to leave this for another episode, but I keep talking about this idea of jurisdictions affixed to territory. Yes. And this is one where you can, you can adopt a governance system that may or may not be affixed to territory where we have governance in the cloud. Okay. Um, 
I'll leave it for the moment right there. DAOs represent a good uh, a, a good instantiation of that, which is a blockchain-based system of participatory creation of mutuals and civil societies, civic societies. Um, and uh, polyarchy is a very promising avenue for change in, in the age of complexity. Yep, I, I agree with that. And I think that's something we can get into at more depth, but like the principle makes sense rather than sort of locality of geography, you're talking about maybe something that's more abstract, but it's kind of like an area of concern and yeah. people kind of joining across geographical regions around certain areas of concern and deciding to govern those areas uh, together. And, Absolutely. And I think some combination of this kind of disaggregation to geographical locality, plus in a way, a kind of a re-aggregation of areas of concern yep. will give us something. And this is a, we'll just leave this as a teaser for the future of governance. Max, this has been super fun to, I want to do more. I wish we had more time. I wish we had more time. And let's like, bring them back for next time. Part two for this conversation. All right. Awesome. Excellent. Great. See you next time. See you next time. <laughs>